Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 12, 2011, and my guest is John Taylor, the Marion Robert Raymond Professor of Economics at Stanford University and the George P. Schultz Senior Fellow in Economics at the Hoover Institution. John, welcome back to EconTalk. Great to be back, Russ. Uh, we're going to start off by talking about what's going on in the economy right now. Uh, we're doing this in July of 2011. The recent jobs report for June of 2011 with the revisions in April and May were very dis- was very disappointing. Unemployment has been over 9% for roughly two years. Uh, there's a couple months it dipped under 9 but uh, things don't look very good. What's your, what's your assessment? I think this has really been a very disappointing recovery from the beginning. It's now just about two years old. Um, it... Um, compared to the recovery from the most recent deep recession in 81-82, it's incredibly weak, almost non-existent. For example, coming out of the 81-82 recession, that recovery's first two years had 7% growth, and, and so far this is 2.8, and it looks like the second quarter when we get the number will be even below 2%. We don't know it yet, but it's it's very disappointing. I think to analyze this, you got to think about the about this whole picture, and and I think that's why I keep coming back to the policy. What's different now is the policy. We're doing many different things uh, than in the last recovery, and I tend to focus on that. But but there's differences of opinion. Some people talk about the you know, the balance sheet out of line. Uh, some people talk about the zero interest bound. But I think basically it's an erratic set of policies uh, across the board, which is well. Let's talk about the balance sheet though for a minute because. The standard uh, defense of the policies has been it was worse than we thought. Um, that's, to me, not a very useful analysis. But it is possible that it's not so much to me that it was worse than we thought, but that there were things holding the economy back that we didn't maybe fully appreciate. Uh, one I worry about and, and don't really know how to think about, and like your thoughts, is the housing mess that we're still in. We have a large number of houses that are either uh, underwater and potentially going to have to go into foreclosure or simply in limbo. Uh, you know, the, the foreclosure process isn't taking its normal path or at least it's taking a long time. Uh, that is potentially deterring both fi- the financial sector and the household sector from acting in a positive and, and risk-taking way. What, what do we know about that? Well, I think what we've learned is a lot of the interventions to try to fix this, working for the foreclosures, first-time home buyers, have really not done the trick, basically. And so the lesson to me is you really have to let market forces move, let the prices adjust, and then we'll have the recovery uh, of the housing market. It is a difficult problem, especially for lots of people, and there's the strategic default issue, which is uh, very hard to, to deal with. What do you mean and by that? An, in addition, there's the um, problems of the banks and what, what their 
balance sheet is like. A strategic default, of course, is this idea where people see their mortgages more than the value of the house, and they say, well, I'm, I'm not paying. I'm getting out. I'm moving. And that's, uh, that's, that can happen, absolutely. absolutely. I think, though, that if you, if you think about this slow recovery, that cannot possibly be the whole answer to me, because while housing is a part of the economy, remember, it's not the only part, and investment in general is low. Business fixed investment as a share of GDP is quite low. And so we basically have lots of opportunities for growth as we, do, as we come in out of all recessions, no matter what they're caused by. And, and housing, by the way, has been a big factor in recessions in the past. So I don't think that's the full answer. I think it's a drag on the economy, but there's always some kind of drag on the economy. So let's look at the, the two major areas where we've attempted to get things started or doing better, which are fiscal and monetary policy, the two traditional tools that macroeconomics councils. So you've recently, with John Kogan, done a very interesting analysis of the stimulus package. So tell us what, what you found and um, what we learned. We think it's very important to estimate the effect of a stimulus package by looking at what actually happened, not to simulate another model again, because the models differ. You simulate one model that said the package would work in advance. That same model is going to say it worked after the fact. A model that said it wouldn't work in advance is going to say it didn't work after the fact. So you've got to go beyond the models, and that's what John Kogan and I have tried to do. We've looked very carefully at the data. We've looked at the money sent to the households. That seemed to have been saved rather than jump-started consumption. We that was about a third of the 800. About so a third. Million. Yeah, about a third. We looked at the money sent to the states, um, the grants, which were meant to jump-start infrastructure spending, other government purchases, it didn't. Infrastructure spending didn't increase. Purchases by the states didn't increase. What we've been able to determine by following the money is the states re reduce the amount of borrowing they have. They, they basically saved it just like the households. So when you look carefully, it, it's basically kind of what you'd expect from basic economic theory. In fact, it's what we learned from studying the stimulus packages in the late 70s where grants were sent to the states. So I think the data are quite convincing, and, and as people look at it more and more, I think they will realize that this package didn't really do what it was supposed to do in the way it was supposed to do it. Now, there was some federal spending directly, correct, in the, in the 800-plus billion. Yes, uh, yes. So when I see the road signs, some road work and other projects were done, presumably, with, with some of the stimulus money. Well, the federal level, that is federal purchases of goods and services, is a very, it's almost an immaterial amount of the total. It's like, you know, less than 0.1% of GDP. So the federal level, at the federal level, there wasn't really uh, this. And by the way, when you see the signs on the road, those could quite well be things that would happen anyway. That's Correct. the notion of shovel ready. Yeah. And, and all you're thinking about is they may have been financed in a different way, rather than bond issuance the municipality or the local government, or even the state, may have simply just uh, used the grant money for that. No difference in the amount spent. So you see, let me try to summarize what I've learned from your paper and see if you think it's the right lesson. It's an interesting critique of the traditional Keynesian spending model. It basically says, ironically, that federal spending is something like the way we carried it out in this particular time, is something like pushing on a string, that, that the planned 
expansion of economic activity didn't, didn't, literally didn't take place because it was either uh, saved by households or offset by changes in spending by the states. Is that, is that correct? Yes, I think, and, and this is really not a surprise. This is one of the major critiques of Keynesian stimulus packages uh, from the beginning. You can't really change on a dime what the government is doing. And, uh, and I, that's why, in fact, this program was designed not to have so much federal spending, but to have more purchases at the states. People realize that. Ironically, they didn't realize that you just send money to the states, a bunch of money, they're not instantly going to go change their uh, spending patterns. But in fact, they, I think our data show they did in a perverse way. They actually took some of this money and increased tra their own transfer payments, say, for example, Medicaid, and reduced their infrastructure purchasing. They basically, the way that ARRA, the stimulus package, was, was stipulated in the law, it encouraged the states to actually reduce their purchases and increase their transfer payments, which, again, is, is counterproductive. So th that's one side. Um, I suppose <clears throat> when I say one side, I meant that's one, one side of the set of tools. The proponents of stimulus, uh, they've argued that it simply wasn't big enough. That's one of their, their arguments. Uh, and they will concede, I think, that it was poorly planned, that it didn't, wasn't targeted. Um, did they accept, uh, some of the proponents have accepted, as far as I can tell, the argument that the states uh, simply borrowed less and that there was no real net stimulus. Can you summarize what kind of reaction you've gotten from the paper? Well, the initial reaction was, was quite negative. Hostile. Hostile, probably, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think as people look at the neighbor, it's kind of hard to refute because these are just really looking at numbers and there's, there still will be attempts to do that. But I think I feel quite um, pleased that this message seems to be getting out, as you say, and people seem to agree. I don't think there's evidence for the view that it just should have been bigger. I don't think, that's certainly not how I read this at all. In fact, with these data, we built a little model and, and simulated the counterfactual of a larger stimulus. In other words, designed in the same way, which I think is a practical fact of life, but much bigger. And the effects are the same because people just save it, states just put it in their coffers, and, and you don't get more stimulus. So I think it's, a, it's really a misinterpretation of what happened to say it just should have been bigger. Boy, it was large already. We increased our debt, and it wouldn't have been more stimulative. It had been larger, it might have been more counterproductive. Well, let's talk about the monetary side. <clears throat> so we've just finished um, this slightly bizarre episode called Quantitative Easing 2. Now, if you go back to some EconTalk episodes we did with... Um, I remember the one with Alan Meltzer, where you know basically said, and I think you'd agree that monetary policy isn't hampered by the zero interest rate lower bound because the Fed can always inject money directly into the economy by buying assets of various kinds, essentially printing money uh, and putting money into the hands of either investors or or, say, or consumers, whoever gets that money. Uh, it strikes me that two things strike me about this episode of QE2. It, first of all, it's quite large. Um, I, I want to say it was $600 billion. Yes. So it was approximately the magnitude of the stimulus package, and it came on the heels of some very aggressive monetary policy before that. 
um, it's strikingly ineffective. Uh, why? And, and how, how do you reconcile that ineffectiveness with the confidence with which someone like certainly Ben Bernanke, but even Alan Meltzer and others who are proponents of the, the, the efficacy of monetary policy, uh, it seems to have done nothing. Is that, is that a correct analysis, or do we not really know yet? Well, I looked at it, uh, the numbers pretty carefully, more of QE1, which just to be sure was the similar purchases of treasuries, smaller amount of treasuries, but much more in the way of mortgage-backed securities. One and a quarter trillion of mortgage-backed securities were purchased and 300 billion of treasuries. I looked carefully at the mortgage-backed securities purchases and can find very small, if any, effect, and they're very uncertain. And so I think basically both QE1 and QE2 were disappointed from that perspective. Now, with respect to the uh, premise here that monetary policy is still effective, I, I think it is, and, but it, I would put it this way. When the interest rate hits the zero bound, then you should focus more on keeping money growth from falling. And that's what the kind of strategies that Milton Friedman would have advocated. That's what he found and others found in the Great Depression, the Fed let money growth decline. So the right strategy, I believe, would have been when the interest rate hits zero, is just to make sure money growth didn't decline rather than have these gigantic injections of uh, what we call high-powered money or bank reserves into the economy, hoping to drive mortgage rates down, hoping to drive medium treasury rates down, because we have a lot of theories out there that say that those won't affect longer-term rates by a very large amount. So, so help me out here. The, the actual activities that the Fed did, which was... Getting the numbers right, I think uh, 1.4 trillion was QE1, quantitative easing one, uh, which was mostly mortgage-backed securities. Those were assets that were on the the books of either Fannie and Freddie, so-called government-sponsored enterprises, or investment banks. Correct. Correct. They're mortgage-backed securities guaranteed by Fannie and Freddie. So that was most of the 1.1.25. Okay, so that. Pushed money where? Onto the balance sheets of whom? Right. Uh, so the, the way the Fed has to, of course, have money to buy all these securities, and they get the money by just um, crediting the banks with deposits at the Fed. That's the notion that you're creating money. You're creating reserves at the Fed. That's a measure of money. Okay? And you called, that's what you called high-powered money. That's what I call yeah. high-powered money. Lots of names for high-powered money, monetary base, central bank money. And it simply means the the deposits that banks hold at the central bank at the Fed. The currency is part of it, too, but the main thing is the change in deposits by banks at the Fed. So the Fed gets its money by simply uh, taking those deposits, uh, putting them on their, its books from the banks. So the, the idea would be then that the banks would, as a mechanism for economic activity, that the banks would then go out and use those reserves. They wouldn't want to keep money just sitting around on the Fed's balance, on their balance sheet with the, with the Fed. They, they're going to do something with it. Is the, is the case that they haven't? They haven't. Uh, we saw that in, right away when the balance sheet of the Fed, by that I mean these reserves that the banks hold of the Fed, when they exploded in the panic period of early, late 2008 and then continued with these quantitative easements, we saw the banks just took it on. And there's just a, they just basically, if the Fed purchased more securities, the banks would hold these. They didn't go out and, and lend them separately. And so, of course, they are paying some interest on these reserves. It's a very small amount. It's, it's less than the banks could get by doing other things. So 
So the banks didn't lend it out. And of course, if they lent it out, then you would have really an explosion of the money supply very quickly. So, so that by not lending them out, the Fed has actually had uh, been given another discretionary tool to buy all these securities. So I remember in the early days of the crisis, uh, Hank Paulson, who was Secretary of the Treasury at the time, who had initiated the TARP program, the Toxic Asset Reserve Program? Is that what it stands for? I can't remember now. So long ago. Back in the, back in the early aughts. Um, doesn't matter. But the government um, had these banks whose balance sheets they were worried about, and they injected all these. It was separate now, right? Correct? This is not the Fed, or is it part of the Fed? This is, the TARP was not the Fed, no. Right. So they, they also put a lot of resources into these, particularly these distressed banks, and they got very upset <laughs> uh, that they just sat on them. They yelled at them. They basically, it was kind of, I don't know whether this was theater or whether it was something else, but uh, I found it rather strange that the Secretary of Treasury was browbeating the banks for saying, you know, we did, we only gave you this. It's, it's like you give your teenager uh, money and, and you expect him to go buy uh, organic vegetables instead he, he goes and buys beer. Um, come on, I, I gave it to you for organic vegetables. So I, why in the face of that behavior, which is clearly a response due to either unease or lack of opportunity, why do we do it again? What, what, did, what do you think Bernanke had in mind with QE2 when he had these banks already well above their minimum reserves? What, what was he hoping to accomplish? What do you think his public and private yeah, story is there? It was very clear. He, he wanted to reduce longer-term interest rates okay, by buying longer-term securities, which would drive their price up and therefore their yield down. That was clearly the purpose. Similarly, the purpose with the purchasing the mortgages to reduce mortgage interest rates. And the, the connection with your question about uh, the banks holding the reserves and, and effectively the fact that the banks just took on those reserves allowed the Fed to do all these purchases and try to, to use those funds to drive interest rates down. And what, what didn't work, at least as I can tell, um, was it it didn't drive those rates down. And those markets are gigantic, and they depend on expectations of the future. And, and of course, you can, you know, by big injection, you can move them temporarily. But by and large, uh, the Fed didn't move those very much. And I think that's what we would expect from basic theory. Okay, so, <clears throat> so one story would be they were, they were disappointed with the outcome of the policy. A, a more cynical story would be that that the, the Fed has political allies who are the financial community. They had bought a bunch of bad stuff. And this was a way to get it off, off their books and make them healthy without making it look like welfare. Is it, is it correct to characterize the Federal Reserve in, in the last few years as being a, um, a sugar daddy to the financial sector and, and where, where the risks of those assets have now are going to be borne by the taxpayer rather than those original institutions. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things there. I think during the, the preceding the panic with the rescue of um, Bear Stearns creditors and AIG's creditors, that's obviously uh, a situation where the Fed took on risk, and even though its intentions were placed otherwise, as far as we know, did help directly those creditors. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, with respect to these quantitative easings, which 
I'll refer mainly to these large-scale asset purchases of, of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Those are, uh, are highly, you know, treasuries are safe securities. So you're not doing anybody a favor by taking, those aren't toxic assets. So the motivation of the Fed there was not to take the toxic assets off of the bank's balance sheet. It couldn't be, but to basically reduce those rates. Now, the other, just one other follow-up to your question about um, helping the banks, the zero interest rate on, uh, on federal funds or near zero obviously is a way to increase banks' profits because they can lend at higher rates than that. So the margin between the Fed's rate, uh, which they're able to control now, um, and the lending rates of the banks is a, is a profit margin, and so that does help the banks. To what extent that's motivating the Fed, I don't know, but it's, it's at least an indirect effect. What do we know, if, if you have it at your fingertips, what do we know about the volume of activity? You know, we, we talk about, we talk a lot about prices, which are the interest rate. Uh, we say that banks have all these reserves on their books. It, it reminds me a little bit of this claim that, you know, consumers aren't spending. Well, they're spending. They're spending an enormous amount. They're maybe not spending as much as they did before, but it suggests that people are going to a shopping mall, going to the grocery, people spend their money. They're not saving 80%. They might be saving right. 5 or 8% relative to close to zero, or some say negative. Uh, so when we say that the banks are, quote, sitting on the money, um, do we have any evidence that, that they're really literally sitting on the money? That, that, that you, one, that it's hard to get a loan? If I'm a, if I'm a small business and I want to start a venture, can I get a loan? Or is it simply I don't want to ask for it because I'm anxious about the future if indeed the volume is low? Do we know anything about those volumes? The volumes are gigantic. We know. We can see them. We get the data from what's, what the banks are holding at the Fed, and they are, you know, you know a trillion and a half. The holdings are gigantic. But what about the – are they yeah, doing anything? The holding – your question really is why they're holding it. They're no, no. <laughs> I'm asking a different question. They're doing something. The banks aren't just sitting around twiddling their thumbs and saying, well, I hope it gets better someday. They are lending some of that money, right? Absolutely. There's, there's bank loans. Bank loans are out there. <laughs> but the amount of money they have to lend from these zeros is it's much larger. I They're holding a big excess. Okay, so that's just there in the data. And then why are they holding excess? Are they purposely holding back because of they don't want it? Well, no, they're, they want to like make money like everyone else. And it's, it seems to me that there, the demand in the economy is, is low compared to those gigantic amount of reserves. Clearly, they're cautious. Some of the some of them may be more cautious than others, but there's this general, you know, either uh, supply or demand, and I think it's it's mainly demand. Demand for loans is low. But is actual loan activity at a fraction of what it was during good times? Is it? In other words, I understand they're not lending lending out the whole thing. Okay. But are they lending out a sufficient chunk that maybe the total volume of Well, they're lending out an amount that corresponds to the weak economy, right? Yeah. The economy is weaker. Business investment is weaker. Um, another way to think about this demand side is the cor corporations are sitting on a lot of cash, so to speak. Their, their own balance sheets have a lot of short-term liquid um, assets that they could invest and build things with. So, so in a way, they, for, that's another reason they don't even need a lot of this bank lending, they're holding back for other reasons. Presumably unease about the future, uncertainty. Une uncertainty. Well, the, you know, the, the things we keep mentioning, the uncertainty about the regulations and the healthcare and the financial services area, 
our taxes are going to increase, what are we going to do about the budget deficit? I, when you talk about this to businesses, they focus on this uncertainty a lot. You can't prove it. I don't think no, it's a speculation, it, right? obviously. Uh, so one view of where we are right now is that, okay, the traditional tools of fiscal monetary policy either have failed or been implemented poorly. Um, what do we do now? What would you do now if you could do what you wanted? When you say the traditional tools have failed or implemented, I would say what we learned as lessons from a couple of decades of pretty good times in the 80s and 90s was, I would say, follow a more steady-as-you-go policy. With respect to the, the Fed, don't try to re reduce rates too much. Uh, with respect to fiscal policy, don't try these short-term stimuluses. They, we knew they didn't work in the past. They cause, probably uh, cause uncertainty and make things worse. And they now have created this, in the Fed's case, this monetary overhang, which we've just been discussing, this big increase in reserves. And, of course, we have this gigantic debt at the, at the fiscal level. So I would say that the thing to do, which would be most powerful for the recovery and the things that's missing, is simply to get back to sound fiscal policy, sound monetary policy, and I think that would, would uh, be positive for the economy. So, so it's not like we don't have any tools. We do have a tool. Get back to sound fiscal monetary policy. Okay, so <clears throat> what would that involve? On the fiscal side, it means having um, a, a good plan to reduce the deficit over time um, from the very high levels it is now. I think the way to do that that's most constructive to economic growth is to reduce the growth of spending, not to uh, raise tax rates. There are some plans out there. The uh, political system can't get there quite well, but there's progress. Actually, I think in the last year, um, things look quite dismal that we we're going to even address this. Now, been an election in November. Uh, President Obama's first budget was basically withdrawn, and he's got new proposals with reduced spending. So, so we're making progress on the fiscal side. I think on the monetary side, I think there's also a realization that these interventions have not work very well, and that's what you're saying here and we're talking about in this interview. And so they seem to be pulling back from that. So in their case, they, want, they should lay out an exit strategy that shows how they're going to get that balance sheet back down in a reasonably predictable way that doesn't cause too much uncertainty. Uh, and then when the time comes, start to raise rates a little bit and, uh, and eventually try to prevent the uncertainty about inflation, which is out there and and if you like another contraction that people worry about. So today is July 12th. Uh, we are uh, 21 days, three weeks, away from a supposed crisis, August 2nd, when, if nothing is done, the, it's alleged the federal government will be unable to meet its obligations uh, without uh, borrowing. The debt limit will have been reached and we won't be legally allowed to borrow, and we face it, the risk of default, at least in some dimension. What are you, what, how do you read that, that analysis, um, and, and what do you think ought to be done? I think they ought to make an agreement to uh, reduce spending by a good chunk, two and a half trillion is what I talk about now over, say, 10 years, and simultaneously increase the debt limit by that amount. That establishes the principle that you're not going to just increase the debt without dealing with the spending problem. I think that's a principle which we should continue with. 
And I'm hoping that's where they get to. I think it's possible to do that right now in these talks. Uh, one thing that I always uh, find troublesome, troubling is the, this 10-year thing. So $2.5 trillion sounds like a lot of money. Uh, over 10 years, it's not a lot of money. It's $250 billion, uh, which in a budget of, what, we're what, $3.6 trillion? Um, you know, it's a little, it's a cut. Not a very dramatic cut. It's nothing close to a cut that would put us back to the level of federal activity of, say, even five years ago, four years ago, before this enormous expansion. Uh, it's strange what the baseline is. Why do you pick such a small You're quite market? right to question the, the trillions in the 10-year, and, and so I like to do look at the actual path and uh, look at graphs. I've spent a lot of time trying to have graphs that show what, this, what these trillions mean. And, and for example, if you took six trillion off the current projections, uh, that really would bring federal outlays as a share of GDP back to where they were before the mess began, around 19.5%. And so that's a good goal. I as think. a percentage of GDP. As a percentage of GDP. I think that's a good goal, and that's balance the budget without raising taxes. Okay, so, so six trillion, it, if you go there at a reasonable pace, will do that. And I think it's very important to think about it in those terms. But if you get your, I'm talking about two and a half trillion, by the way, so that's not all the way to six. I would say if we could get two and a half trillion now and the, the, the remaining three and a half, I think that could be part of the discussion over the next year. We have a presidential election, current president says he wants to raise taxes, all the, his opponents on the Republican side say they don't. We have a debate about that three and a half trillion. Get two and a half out of the way, that's a good game changer. We shouldn't, that's a big difference from where it was a year ago. And then to do the three and a half, I think that would be a sensible way to proceed. One of the fine things I find so dysfunctional, though, about the political system is how different it is from what we might call sensible family budgeting. Um, if, if my family, if I lost a source of income, if I found myself indulging a taste for uh, fast cars, uh, which fortunately I don't have, but maybe to please my teenage sons. I, I, I bought a car I really struggled to afford, and I realized, oh my gosh, you know, I'm living beyond my means, and eventually somebody's going to say, I don't think I'm going to keep financing that. Uh, I'd look around and I'd say, well, let's look at the stuff that isn't so important. Uh, another strategy would be, let's cut... 15% across the board. We'll eat out 50% less. We'll spend 15% less on vacation, 50% less on clothing. Obviously, there's some things it's hard to spend 15% less on. But the government, I have no idea what the process is, um, other than it's not what economists would like it to be, right? We'd say things like, well, let's look at the stuff the private sector could maybe do as effectively. Let's privatize some things that aren't really being done well. That's, I have no, do you have any idea what they're actually doing? I don't know what they're doing when they talk about these guys. Well, the, the more worrisome part is, do they know what they're doing? <laughs> well, no. And I, they're obviously. there, and I think, no, it's a serious question. It's a very complex budget. There's uh, a lot of devil in the details. You go down and you look at what a given agency is doing. I think one way to think about this and make some common sense judgments is think about shared GDP, the whole thing. You know, it's now over 24% of GDP. In 2007, it was... 19.5% of GDP. Why can't we get spending back? What's the big 
harm? What's the pain involved of getting government agencies to spend at the levels they were spending in 2007? And even with inflation, there's still growth of spending. So I think that's what the bottom line, people should be asking each agency, each account, why can't you get back to where you were in 2007? What's, what's, and so just go through, that's, that's, that's right, what that, you do if you... Wouldn't that, yeah. right? wouldn't that be sensible? Right. So we could look at your budget, what were we doing three or four years ago? When we were okay. And we'll, yeah, we'll make the, get back there. So one answer would be, well, we're bombing Libya now, and that, that's an extra commitment we made. We might decide we can't afford it, but that would be one example of where we'd know we're doing something we didn't do in 2007. What I find striking about the political debate is I have not seen a careful analysis of what, which agencies are spending more relative to 2007. Now, we understand that when unemployment goes up, unemployment insurance is higher, Food stamps are higher, right. but those are relatively small amounts of money. Where's the other five percentage points of GDP, which is huge? It's a trillion, it's a trillion bucks. There's a lot of incentive in the agencies Almost. and the people who are getting these funds not to go through that calculation, right? Because they they like the fact that they got uh, extra spending in the last two or three years. That's a they think that's it's good to do it regardless. Sure. Anyone anyone would defend what they have and try to prevent. So I think there's a real incentive not to simply say, well, we can get along with what we were three years ago because people, people like the extras. And you know, places that, like this university where I teach, Stanford, receives federal funding. And they got more federal funding in the last yeah, few years. A lot of universities did. And so they're going to be defending that uh, as anyone would. So, you know, you'd think they could just... Um just look. Uh, it's a good. Um, it's a good economic. Yeah. For somebody out there who's listening, yeah. who, who's looking yeah. for. Uh, I would say that I agree. And you know, one of the things which and why your series here is so important. People quickly tune out about the numbers and and they and charts even charts. They just it, our eyes glaze over. So I think it's a real uh, challenge to get people to focus more on these on these numbers on these charts. Uh, However you want to erupt the, the simple stories like you've emphasized here, I just think that there's um, it, it, the, the facts would be so revealing. It doesn't help resolve all the differences of opinion, but I think we could go so much further uh, by just explaining, and here's what this agency was doing, here's what that agency was doing. To take an example from the Fed, by the <clears throat> way, which uh, another one of my pet peeves, uh, you mentioned the bailout of the creditors of Bear Stearns, which is, I think, the right way to talk about it. It wasn't a bailout of Bear Stearns, a bailout of their creditors, as listeners know. I care deeply about that distinction. Um, to get J.P. Morgan Chase to take on the obligations of those creditors, of, of meeting them, the government acquired, excuse me, guaranteed, or acquired, or both, about $30 billion of so-called toxic assets of Bear Stearns. I remember that weekend very vividly, that March 2008 weekend when that happened, and as has been the case in every one of these expansions of government uh, discretion, we were assured that, well, they actually, you know, this may turn out to be a moneymaker because when the Fed acquires these, you know, we don't know what they're worth now, but the market's thin, these aren't so liquid, but, you know, when things get better, I find it remarkable that I have, who's, 
and I speak about myself now, who's a relatively informed person in this area. I'm in the top 1%. I'm not the most informed person, but I'm in the top 1%. I have no idea whether that turned out to be a good idea or not. I have no idea what the state of those assets is. I suspect it would be extremely difficult to discover what, what has happened to those. And they get rolled into all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know, the, the lack of transparency, certainly the Fed, which is famous for it, but certainly, even in this case, as you point out, the, the state of the budget is so complex. A lot of times we're talking about future activities where the, the rules aren't clear, what the baseline is. Um, it would be a very useful thing just to get a little bit of a fact or two uh, about activity. Um, that'd be a good, uh, good project for somebody out there listening. Absolutely. Right? I'd, I'd encourage it very much so. Yeah. The thing about the Fed and the banks, which um, I guess goes without saying, Russ, is that, remember, the, the banks are the most heavily regulated financial institutions we have. No, they're not, John. We have deregulation in America. Banks do whatever they want. <laughs> Didn't you know that? That's why we're in the mess we're in. That, in that free market philosophy. Yeah. And That's the, sarcasm. And, and what what this all points out, and you've talked about this too, is this concept of regulatory capture, right? You have the banks being regulated by uh, groups that seem to be winking about yeah. certain things they're doing. So it's really not the fact that there isn't sufficient regulation. It's they're didn't seem to be doing their job yeah. and doing the regulations. We need to find more out about that. That's a, there's a sort of investigative reporting is needed for that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, do you want to say anything else about the debt ceiling? You know, we really face, uh, you suggested what you'd like to see happen uh, in the short run, a, a serious attempt to slow the growth of spending or maybe take it down a little bit, followed by some additional activity if the political will was there. Uh, that may not happen. Uh, are we at risk of heading in the direction of Greece or maybe, again, it's July 12th, Italy was in the headlines this morning. Uh, they face a diff different problem that we may face in the longer run, but that's not our short-run problem, correct? Well, short-run turns into long-run really fast in this business. So I know I think the lessons from uh, Greece and Italy are very relevant to us. First of all, they're part of the same story that what is causing the mess here is some government policies. These spending more than you have, these deficits or maybe it's a monetary policy. But it, it's just another example. How could you blame the markets on what's happening in, in Greece or Italy? That's basically a policy question. And so I think the lesson for us is very clear. In fact, it may have been one of the reasons why we've begun to see this shift in the U.S. that people don't want to go down that road. And, and, and so I, I think the lesson is there. And the way the financial markets work, things can turn against you pretty quickly. People get a perception that we haven't dealt with this problem. Uh, it's, we, we don't have the political will. And um, it could be very damaging. So if that's the case, if there is a serious risk here, and I ask this question because I am personally, historically, a deficit dove. I've often said, you know, deficits aren't that important. I learned that from Milton Friedman. It's the spending that matters. Uh, it's not how you finance it. A deficit is simply a mix of taxes today and tomorrow rather than just taxes today. And the real drag on the economy comes from uh, 
taking real resources out of the private sector and putting it into the public sector to the extent it's used well, it's okay, but to the extent it's not, it's, it's, a, it's a harmful thing. And yet, when I see what's going on in Greece, I get a little bit apprehensive that maybe we're on the verge of not just borrowing a little more than we did before, but potentially getting to a situation that you're suggesting where suddenly people say, uh-oh, we're not going to, we don't see that as a safe asset anymore. And yet, we see nothing in the marketplace that suggests that's the case. Treasury rates remain, remain remarkably low, suggesting that world investors, meaning both American and foreign, don't seem to think there's much of a risk of a default. What do you, how do you read those numbers? Well, we have a weak economy. That's part of the reason why it's come down recently. I think there's um, a, a sense in which people feel we will figure this out long term. We'll, we'll get our act together. America has a history of getting its act together eventually. And, uh, you know, they're making a bet on that. So I think that's why I say it's, uh, things could move against you quickly. If you look at, you know, emerging market countries, uh, when they got into trouble, you would frequently see they may be a rescue. Maybe Argentina gets a rescue from the IMF and interest rates come way down. And the investors say, oh, the confidence is back. But then, you know, everyone knows two or three years later there's going to be a problem again. And then they go ratcheting back up again. And they move against you quickly. And that also, I think, is part of the answer to your question about deficits mattering. Uh, at some point, the debt gets too high. And especially when a, a substantial fraction is held abroad, as, as ours, a large fraction now, half, half of the debt's held abroad. And so that increases the chance that things can move against you rapidly. So I, I, I don't think that's a reason to be complacent. So often in these cases, things look good, and the rates are low, and, and we saw that actually going into the crisis recently. You had uh, risk premiums seemed very low, people didn't seem to be paying attention to the unsustainability of the housing boom, and WAPO, it goes the other direction quickly. Yeah, it's, um, as I, I recently heard Sam Peltzman say, uh, things sometimes go well until they don't anymore. Uh, <laughs> and and that, that turning point, <clears throat> right. think, events often mask what's, uh, what's going on. You mentioned the IMF. Um, as it's uh, been in the news, the head of the IMF until recently um, gotten into a word I like, I don't get to use it very often, a contretemps, French <laughs> word meaning a, um, I don't know exactly what it means, in, it, it means against time in France, French literally, I think, but uh, it means a little dust-up or disturbance. He lost his job, <laughs> um, tabloid uh, set of events, and uh, replacements now uh, on its way, uh, Christine Lagarde. Does AMF play any useful role in the world economy? Is, is, it, is it a net positive? What, what if it, they just said, you know, this was awkward, this is a bad, bad publicity, let's just shut it down. What would, what would be different? Well, I was uh, suggested in the period around the Russian financial crisis that we could, could do that. It's the late, late 90s, right? Late 90s, yeah. And then I worked, went to work in Washington and had responsibility for overseeing the IMF and, and the Treasury. And what seemed to me, based on that experience, is the most important thing you can do, practical thing you can do, is to really put some rules on the behavior of the IMF uh, so that it, it doesn't willy-nilly bail out countries, and, and you, we should say countries' creditors, because that's what they bail out, 
And, and, and in fact, there were some reforms at the IMF in 2003 with respect to emerging markets, which really reduced the amount of bailing out of emerging markets. And lo and behold, emerging markets started to behave a lot better. So, so I think that constraint, and I think of it as like a really rules rather than discretion again, made uh, the, the system work a lot better. Unfortunately, it, the, the same thing has now emerged in Europe. And so they're kind of back in this, in this bailout mode. And, and we need to figure a way to get back out of that again. And, and I think that's what we're going to learn from this crisis. And hopefully that will be the end and the IMF will be con confined to uh, a way to communicate about what your policies are, a way to uh, um, emphasize the importance of free movement of capital, which they had been doing for a while. They've gotten off that track a bit, too. And, and I think that would be beneficial. Of course, the political forces are very similar there as in the United States. They're just different, different titles and have foreign names. Uh, as far as I understand it, the rescue of Greece, again emphasizing the creditors, is mainly a rescue of French banks. Um, and so the political influence of those banks is going to often override good economic policy. Um, I just... Um, Absolutely. And that's what you, that's the same kind of thing that would go on with IMF and emerging markets. Yeah. Emerge, you'd have financial institutions or uh, banks or whatever holding debt of these countries and be very concerned about uh, default. And, right. and so they would basically be quite favorable to the interventions. Then I saw that myself in practice uh, with a number of countries. You, you, to, to say no in those cases, you're going to get a barrage of, of complaints and irritation from the financial sector. And, but sometimes that's the right thing to do when For you're sure. in policy sometimes. So this whole issue of rules versus discretion, which I know you're interested in and I'm interested in as well, uh, the political barrier to that a move from less discretion to more rules really is this. It, it stifles the ability, obviously, to take care of supplicants, which um, uh, is a, a nice word for special interests or, or cronies if you really want to get negative about it. I, I'm increasingly pessimistic about our ability to, to fix that. Um, it, one reason being that there's a shockingly large and shockingly small amount of outrage about what's going on now from both the left and the right. So how can they be at the same time? There's more than I've ever noticed in the, in the following sense. More people are disturbed today than I've ever seen before about the discretion act, discretionary activities of, of the Fed and the Treasury over the last three years. Uh, certainly there's never been a time in my lifetime when there was more uh, cynicism and, and, dis, and dislike of, of the Federal Reserve, for example. And yet, it's relatively small. Uh, mainstream economists, uh, for the most part, assume that we'll just have to get better, you know, strategies, or we'll just tweak the regulations. Uh, so while there are more people than ever advocating, say, a gold standard, which is shocking compared to 10 years ago, it, it's still a relatively small number. Uh, and there's no other... Uh, reasonable reforms on the political docket that I can see um, that are legit, that are going to gather more, more uh, support. So 
What are your thoughts on the prospects for any kind of serious change in any of these areas? Well, in the Fed, I think there are some prospects. It's not a gold standard proposal, but there is, uh, for example, this dual mandate that the Fed has, which is... Talk about that. Has, has, uh, where they're supposed to both look at what's happening in inflation and, and both maximize employment. That creates the excuse, at least, for lots of discretion. It, it changes their role. And for the... I think the good period of Fed performance in, the, in most of the 80s and 90s, until relatively recently, both Volcker and Greenspan de-emphasized that dual and focused on inflation. And so I think the first step is to, is to fix that dual and say, here's what the Fed's responsibility is. And the second thing, in 2000, the reporting requirements of the Fed about the money supply, money growth, were removed from the Federal Reserve Act. And, and what I think we <laughs> should do is, is put them back in in a different form. I, I think I have ways to suggest that that be done. And go back to that. Things worked pretty well. I mean, it wasn't ideal, but geez, a book is, is is better than we've ever seen in history at that point. So I, I'd like to think it's not impossible to to go back that to that in a more modern world we live in, and and achieve many of the goals that people who are advocating a, a gold standard would like to achieve. Do you know why those reporting requirements were changed? Yes. At least why they were said? What was the public statement? They were removed in a, it was actually a part of a housing bill in 2000. They were removed because the monetary aggregates became hard to measure or interpret. They became less reliable. So, in fact, what was happening is the Fed, the required to report about them, would constantly be saying why it can't forecast it very well or projected very well and, and why it deviated from it. So the truth is they became, the, the requirement did become less meaningful because it was being violated all the time and, and um, the Fed was spending all its time explaining that. So, <laughs> so it was removed and no one complained too much about the removing at the time. But I think we now certainly see this was a period after which the Fed moved in much more discretionary ways and I think to have preserved Maybe not those requirements, but a modified version of those requirements. I tend to think they could do that in terms of their strategy for setting the interest rates, for example. I think that's, that would be a, a good reform. And, you know, of course, on the fiscal side, you have proposals for reforms, too. A balanced budget amendment uh, to simply uh, budget rules on spending as a share of GDP. So uh, I think in the fiscal side, more practically, you just got to change the spending, get the spending down. That would be a big improvement. But there's also... So I propose this. So I think, I think uh, there are things to do. It's uh, not a perfect world, but I think we could, we could improve things a lot. Let's shift gears and close with a discussion of uh, macroeconomics uh, as a field. Uh, you've recently been characterized as an anti-Keynesian. Would you say that's an accurate description? And if so, uh, is there a more pro phrase <laughs> than just anti for yourself well, and I'm, your I'm, very, I'm very critical and have been critical for a long time on use of discretionary fiscal policy to try to m mitigate the business cycle. Instead, have stressed the importance of getting the overall stance of fiscal policy right, uh, to have a, a tax system which is efficient, to rely on the automatic stabilizers. I think that would be a, a far better. So in that sense... You, I would be anti-Keynesian, absolutely. And I think I've been clear about that for a while. Based on experience, based on the models that we build, you can't do this fine-tuning. 
And I think the, some people think anti-Keynesian means you, there are no, I believe there's no rigidities in the economy. That's not, I do think there's rigidities in the economy, and that's, that's not a measure of it. I think the main thing is here is, is this a practical prescription uh, for improving the economy? And I think it's not. And one of the things that, you know, you and I talked before this recording about how some people characterize your anti-Keynesianism being, you think all government spending is, is useless or doesn't do anything, and that's not correct, correct? No, absolutely not. You know, there's an important role for government, and there's public goods, there's externalities. We have a long list of, 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 of cost-benefit types of things to go through, and, uh, and there's a, also a role for government in terms of, of maintaining the rule of law and enforcing that. So I think it's, it's very important to, to not be categorized as anti-government spending, certainly, uh, by the word anti-Keynesian. So you're mainly referring to the discretionary fine-tuning... Yes, and, and what goes along with that, of course, is a tendency to expand spending because it kind of becomes a, an excuse, if you like. And I think we've seen that recently. We had a big increase in spending, basically taking our eyes off the ball because we thought, we, I mean our government, thought that this would uh, be stimulative to the economy. So, so that's, that's the, another sense in which it can lead you astray. Yeah, it certainly, um, you know, Keynes famously said um, that if you dig ditches and pay people to dig ditches and fill them back in, you'll still have a stimulative effect. Um, I heard Joe Stiglitz in, in front of Congress agree with that. He said it's not the best thing to do. It would be better to do something more productive with the money. Um, but I, I, I do agree with you that when you get to a, a point where you believe that's true, you certainly uh, open the floodgates to the political uh, pressure to spend money on things that are beneficial to certain groups. Worthless. They're, they're worthless, as that example shows. Say that again? Spend money on things that are worthless. Yeah, as the example shows. Yeah, yeah, and that's. Uh, but but again, the argument there is it's a free lunch because it increases aggregate demand. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. I, I hey, by the way, just on the free lunch, it it at best you could have like a really short term little blip or something, and then that's going to dissipate, and then you have a cost of higher taxes that pay for the debt. So I I think it's one of the things that people have to think about when they. Make their take their position on Keynesian versus anti-Keynesian is this is a quantitative thing. Let me put it this way: we're talking about numbers. So many of these things, at best, are sort of like short-term little gooses to the economy. At the best, they're that, and then they leave you even worse off very quickly than you were before. So I don't think that is a positive. I think that's a negative. It's it, it's like the cash for clunkers is a little maybe a, people spent people did spend more for cars in that period. They moved the purchases forward by a few months. It did no good to the recovery. And so much of this is of that nature. And I think the more people kind of understand that, but it is a matter of, a matter of understanding the timing, the numbers, and the size, what's temporary, what's permanent. So it's kind of hard. Yeah. Do you think this episode, which of course isn't over, um, incredible time to be alive as an economist because... Still a lot of uncertainty about how it's going to turn out. We may be facing a double dip. Um, do, you th do you think that there's going to be much change in 
in textbook economics of how we think about these things. I mean, I've, we've talked about this before, but I find it remarkable that, as you said, we looked really carefully at past stimulus programs, fiscal policy expansions. It's pretty much a, conclu yeah. a, a unanimous conclusion that they're not very effective. Um, in the midst of a panic and political pressure, that knowledge, if indeed it was right, was ignored. And now we're back. We have a lot of smart people arguing that it, it should have worked, it could have worked, it did work even. Uh, people like you and I are saying it failed. Uh, and we should continue to learn the lessons we've already learned. We just seem to have forgotten them. How do you think it's going to play out in the textbooks? Well, I say those who write textbooks that have, they think it worked, will write that. And those who have textbooks that think it didn't will, will emphasize the, the latter. And of course, since textbooks have to appeal to everybody, there'll be a tendency to, to, to give the other side. Uh, but I think, to me, the, the textbooks should reflect once again, these things didn't work in practice. They shouldn't contain that in there. The, you know, the textbooks which have these Keynesian crosses in them that we call them, they've got to, you've got to have huge warning signs under them. It, this is really not how we founded this to work in practice. And I, that's what I'd like to do. I, I gave a talk to the American Economic Association a few uh, weeks ago where I kind of outlined my thoughts of how it should affect the teaching. And I also emphasize that we now have just a host of interesting examples to teach students. Say like this cash for clunkers where we paid money. Beautiful example of they did move their purchases forward from the future. It's incentives work. Um, and you also have the information about what happened to the uh, money when people were giving it. Uh, they, they held it. That's just what the permanent income model shows you, a beautiful illustrations of that. So I think... In terms of teaching economics, it's a huge opportunity to give examples of, 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 of the fact that our models work pretty well. Well, and, and those examples, what I like about them, and long-time listeners will know about my feelings about empirical work and, and anal data analysis, uh, those are simple. There's nothing complicated. There's no complicated model. You're just looking at, you're looking at the data. Of course, there's always some yeah. questions of interpretation and measurement and it's always it's not perfect, but uh, those stories that you just mentioned, those are stories that principles of economics in a freshman economic class could easily uh, absorb, right? Absolutely, and since I teach principles, I've been using them already, and they are convincing. I'd say that I would say the students coming into economics one or economics one hundred and one uh, definitely have a skepticism of some of these Keynesian things. You know, they see the Keynesian cross and. But now there's, I think, more, more reason to be skeptical. They just sort of have, they can see what happened in the simple illustrations. So I think that will affect things. Uh, whether 30 years from now there's another big crisis and we do it again, I hope not. But it's, you get discouraged sometimes. I hear you. My guest today has been John Taylor. John, thanks for being a part of Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.